We'll be back in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. As we are working our way through this book, it's been, I've shared with some of you, bittersweet. And it's making me reflect on myself and, and things that we've been through as a church and how we've grown and, and matured as a body the past 11 years. The last two weeks, Josh had led us through the qualifications of elders in verses 4 through 9. If you look at verses 6 through 9, it says, If a man is blameless, husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless, a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding, holding fast to the faithful word he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Those are the things that we look for and those that we would have shepherd us, right? I was at my granddad's church for a Bible study and I, I started using a tablet to read because I'm blind in one eye and I really can't see well out the other. And the, the guy was asking me about my tablet and it, it's easier for me to read with a tablet. And, and I said, you know, it really brought out more joy in reading for me. I didn't really like to read because it was, it was hard for me to do because of my vision. And it went on and this guy's teaching the class, the pastor sitting next to me and the guy gets to a part that he really doesn't understand, which he should have if he's teaching the class, and the, he, he has the pastor. He's like, what do you think this means? Does it mean that? He's like, it sounds good to me. It's like, I, I'm like this guy. I don't like reading. I was like, no, no, no. First of all, you should know, uh, you know you, or, or be able to, to come up with an answer or say, I don't know. I'll get back to you. Not, not I'm like this guy. I don't like reading. I had a... At a wedding, I, I was next to this guy, and it was after a church service, and, and he had uh, mentioned to me that he had been called to preach, and that he had started going to, uh, I think it was higher ground, and he, was, he had left pretty quickly because uh, he said, well, you know, they just won't let anybody in the pulpit. And I thought, well, you think? <laughs> it's a pretty big ask for, for someone that just comes into a church. And then he gets up and, and starts, uh, he asks for prayer for his daughter because she was dating an atheist, and, which is, a, a, you know, something to request prayer for. And then he says, I don't even know that I know what an atheist is. So I explained what an atheist is. And he said, oh, I know. <laughs> so you're a liar right off the bat. Good things. You know, the old Jeff Foxworthy joke, uh, if you what is it? If you wake up in the middle of the night and you smell fried chicken and you see it as a call to preach, you might be a redneck. It's, it's really, honestly, these calls to preach are that ridiculous sometimes. You know, sorry, I had to ring up Jeff Foxworthy in a sermon. You know, you hear, we hear that you're a good you're a good speaker. You should preach. You, these people get thrown into these positions, or they want to throw themselves in this position. Is the one man I. 
I had mentioned. And they don't really want to consider the, the qualifications for an elder or pastor. One of our own young men, who is very bright, I've just been blown away by him in the short time that he's been here. He was offered a pastoral position and because these people saw in him this knowledge that he possessed, and he does. And, and he quickly declined. In showing wisdom, he declined this because he, he understood that I'm, I'm, not, I'm not quite ready. And this man is a blessing to this church, and, and I have extremely high expectations uh, for him. Uh, no pressure, right? And I don't think any sane person could look at the, the qualifications for an elder or a pastor and be like, you know what? I got, I, that's me, right? That's explaining me right there. That's me to a T. I've got, I've got it down. I don't think any sane person would, would think that, or, or they shouldn't. It, it, would, it would be a, a prideful thing to think that you had that all figured out. A desire will come from within a person who is called to that office. It, it'll be like a little kindle, you, you're, and it, and it kind of grows, and then, and then the body will will approach you and say, "Hey, you, you we see these these qualifications in, in you, and maybe maybe you're able to teach, and and they that calling becomes sure with the Holy Spirit working within you, and then that body actually calling you." You know, preaching and teaching are really the best parts of, of, of being an elder. It's joyful. You, you, you dive into God's word for hours and hours, and you see, you see his glory revealed. You see his will for us. You see the majesty of Christ. It's penetrating your hearts as we're studying. It's like, it's like preparing a meal all week for your, for your family and, and, and feeding them on, on Sunday morning. And over the years, you get to you get to watch you get to watch these people grow and mature as they're nurtured by the this bread of life, the Word of God. And I think I shared this before. You know, it might be hard to swallow at times, but it's always it's always nutritious. It's always what's best for you. My grandmother used to get mad at me because I would turn down food, and her you don't know what's good for you. You know, like I don't like mayonnaise, nanny. I'm sorry, it's it's not my thing. It, in today's text, we're going to be in Titus 10, uh, 1, 10 to th- verses 10 to 16. And as Josh had went over the qualifications of elders, we're going to see the task of the elders. And this, <laughs> these tasks are not at, at the top of my or any person's favorite things to do. No, no, no elder would be like, well, this seems like fun. But they're necessary. They're necessary for a healthy church body. These are really the hardest things to deal with. And we have dealt with them, and it was hard. As a young church, we've been through a lot of things, and we've come out stronger. And it's because... We try to stay true to God's word, and, and we perform these tasks as best we can. So if you're able, please stand with me as we give honor to God's word. I 
says, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole household, teaching things they ought not to, for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the doctrine, in the faith, giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments. Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments. I'll learn to read someday. Of men who turn from the truth. (laughs) To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. And merciful Father, as we dive into your word, we, I just ask that you would call my nerves this morning. Far be it that you would use me, a sinful man, to utter an ounce of truth of your word. Lord, let your word go forth and accomplish all that you set it forth to do. Bless the hearer this morning. We love you and we praise your holy name. It's in Christ's name we pray. All of God's children said, amen. So, so for Paul's transitioning from, from the, the qualifications to, to the task. So it says, for there are many insubordinate. Qualified elders will hold fast to the, to the word, the faithful word, in verse 9. It's, it's almost like a therefore in, in Paul's other writings. We have the, the, for there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers, deceivers. So there, there are many insubordinate. They don't, they're disobedient. They don't want to fall. They're not subject, subjecting themselves to, to the authority of Scripture or to the authority of even the other elders or, or the body of, of, the, of Christ. They're, they're wild. They're disobedient. The fact that these people were present in the church, Paul's, Paul sees the urgency to, to shut them up. Paul recognized that Titus could not do it alone, no matter how faithful he was or how hard he tries, he was going to need help, and he was to appoint elders to come alongside to help with the task of, of feeding the sheep and protecting them. So Paul warned Timothy of the effects of false teachers, saying that they would pay attention to, to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And we have idle talkers or vain talkers, speech devoid, useless, devoid of truth, coming up with extra biblical ideas which are fruitless. And, you know, we've, we've been through that. We, we have a gentleman that, that, that um, was of the impression that um, Adam and Eve had kids before the fall and that it was because of the word multiply. You know, God told Eve, he's like, I'm going to multiply your pain and childbirth and, and multiplication. You can't multiply, nothing, you know, Anything times zero is zero, so they had to have had kids, which is a, a simple word study. Would have, you would have saw that increased pain in childbirth, and it was, it was a pretty simple thing, you know. And it's, we, you kind of like, okay, that's weird, but all right. And another one that was Christ. This is this is heresy to me that that Christ was sin, sinless because of his DNA, that that the the DNA of his father made him sinless, and he was able to remain sinless because his blood was not tainted. Through the, through the line of Adam. And that's ridiculous. And God doesn't have DNA. He doesn't have anything to pass down. He's spirit, right? So Christ remained sinless in the fact that he didn't sin. He, was, he had been tempted as all points as we are, Hebrews 4, 
4.15 tells us he was the lamb provided by God, with a lamb without blemish or spot. In a sermon I'd, I had went over, we, I think it was talking about the precious blood of Christ in First uh, or Second Peter, and I had mentioned this, that this is, I didn't, I didn't call it a heresy, I, I said this is wrong, I feel this is wrong, it was gentle, and uh, when I was done I thought it was a joke, but he, he comes to me and he says, don't ever do that to me again. Or don't ever do that again, not to me. He said, don't ever do that. And I, I said, what? And he said, go against something I, I, I teach or I, or I understand. And I kind of laughed, and I, didn't, I thought it was a joke. And he said, no, I'm dead serious. And he had elevated himself above. He was, he was being insubordinate at the time. He was above Josh. He was above myself. And, and I was kind of just taken back, and I thought, well, if it's a big deal, he's going to come to me and have a, a grown-up conversation about it. And it, it, it didn't happen. So it starts out seemingly innocent, you know, so, well, that's a secondary issue, you know. Uh, and then, it, then it's, well, that's a little off, you know, but well, we can kind of overlook it. And then, then it turns out, it turns into flat-out lies. I've got away with this much, and it's a little more, and then it's, then it's flat-out lies, dividing the body of Christ. And we learned a valuable lesson. There's really no secondary issues. Maybe eschatology. If, you know, I know that that's another thing, Josh. <laughs> if it's not in Scripture, I'm not going to try to glean something from it that's not there. Like, okay, if Adam and Eve had kids and God wanted me to know they had kids before the fall, it would have been there. Okay, I, it doesn't matter, really. What is it, in the grand scheme of things, who cares, Right. But it's like trying to find, you know, I don't know if it's to kind of look smart or, or come across as, as, you know, check me out, I've discovered this new thing in the Bible. Don't do it. If you do if you do, do that, it, it's, it's just vain. It's, it's worthless anyway. It's worthless to, to, if they did have kids, it's worthless because we don't know that they had kids and it's not there and it doesn't matter, right? So basically liars, whether, whether they are adding to you or... or or taking away from Scripture. And, and then Ephesians 4, let's turn there. And Paul addresses in verse 14, it says that we should no longer be tossed, children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness. Of deceitful plotting. So, if you look at uh, that word trickery in the Greek, it's kubaya. It's dice, like the same as as dice. He's he's likening it to to cheating at dice. And you, how do you cheat at dice? You either either add weight on one side to get it to land where you want it, or you take away weight from one side to get it to land where you want it. It's it's trickery. It's it's cheating. They're cheating the the children of God. So. Taking away from Scripture, adding to Scripture is the same thing as cheating at dice. We're adding to or taking away, trying to get across what we want to get across for selfish reasons. So we see a natural flow. It's insubordination. No submission to authority. You have idle talkers, worthless, extra-biblical ideas that really don't matter. And then deceivers, they, 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 they become dogmatic. This flat-out lies. They become dogmatic in their lives. And then by any means necessary, they want to impose it on the body. This is, what, this is how I see it, and this is how you're going to see it, or else. 
they've convinced themselves and they try to convince others that, that this is what's best for them. These deceivers come in under the, the guise of, of biblical terminology. You know, uh, you've heard me say this before. Some of, the, some of the people that I thought were the brightest people biblically uh, that have come through this church, like, wow, this guy's got it figured out. He's pretty sharp, right? They've been the biggest disappointment. And it's sad. It's, it's, it's like there's no application. It's like I, I know all these things, but I can't quite get there from here. I can't, I can't put it all together. Or they don't want to. So then they, they come in the guise of this, this terminology. They often gain a, an audience fairly quickly. These people start to listen. And then it, it just festers. It's a little off. Here we go. On and on and on. In Second Timothy four, verses three and four, says, "For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn away ears away from the truth." And be turned aside to fables. People will give ear to the deceivers. It's kind of natural. We, we kind of like what here and what we like. You know, the Joel Olstein, you know, big, big goofy smile and tell me how to live my best life. We like those things. It's like they want to put a small amount of truth next to next to a bear trap and, and as you're getting closer to it it's just twisting that truth a little more a little more and you're getting closer to the bear trap and it's, it comes down and you're caught you're caught up in it you're trapped can't move you're crippled by it right in Jeremiah 23 1 and 2 Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will t- attend to you for the evil of your doing, says the Lord. Those, those insubordinate, vain, babbling liars are false prophets, and God will deal with them as such. These men will murder the shepherd and, and try to convince the sheep that it was what was good for them. You have no protection anymore. No one to feed you, but this is what's best. I'll do it now. I'll lead them off a cliff. Speaking on behalf of a false god is, is horrific. It's awful. Speaking falsely on the behalf of the one true God is much worse. There's much worse condemnation for the person that speaks falsely on the behalf of the one true God. Still in Jeremiah 23, down in 13, it says, I have seen the folly in the prophets of Samaria. They prophesied by Baal and caused my people Israel to err. Also, I've seen a horrible thing of the prophets of Jerusalem. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They also strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns back from his wickedness. 
All of them are like Sodom to me, and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. It's a pretty strong warning. The prophets of Baal were offensive. The false prophets of the Lord, they face stricter condemnation. These, these prophets are, are nomads often in nature. They wander around from church to church. So, well, I left this church because of this particular thing, or I left that church because of that particular thing. And it's, it's kind of on and on, and, and then they kind of pass through and upset things and move on. The reality becomes that it is that their deceitful endeavors, they don't, they prove fruitless. They don't, they don't get very far in a sound church. It says, especially those of the circumcision, the, the Judaizers, Jews within, within the church, some of them attempted to impose Old Testament ceremonial law on the body of Christ. And Paul dealt with this in Galatians uh, with the Judaizers. He'd came, they had came in and were trying to convince people to be circumcised. And Paul dealt with that harshly. In Acts 15, Peter says not to, not to have Christians circumcised. It's works being added to, to the gospel. It's, really, it's, it's not any different today. It's, 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 this is how I do it, and therefore that's how it should be done. I fast, I abstain, I do... I read 27 pages of my Bible every day and pray for four hours, and this is how everybody else should do it. It's, it's always I, I. It's not, it's not what the Word of God says, what, what, what. It's I, I, I. And when this comes about, it's, it's like, well, I don't, I don't really care. What does this say? I don't care how, how you think it should be done. What does, what does the Word of God say about how it should be done? I care about the, the Word of God and what it says. I, I care about helping people understand what the Word of God says so they can mature and grow. I, I care about guarding the flock, the, the people entrusted to me by God. That's what I care about. That's what Josh cares about. All these teachers that are in here, I know firsthand that's what they care about. And those of the circumcision, we, we say the Jews, the, the Judaizers, that... We, don't, we have people that are not unlike them today. You're just wearing different clothes. The message is the same. It's always an ounce of truth and, and a pound of lies. Go back to Titus here. Verse 11 says, Whose mouths must, must be stopped, who subvert whole households, Teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. His mouths must be stopped. So if we knew that food was poison, would we, would we feed it to someone? Would we say, hey, this, is, this has got some good poison in it. You ought to eat it, right? If we knew that, would we, would we, would we want someone to eat it? And if, you, if the word of God being the bread of life, the, 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 the food that nurtures the body of Christ, the children of God is being subjected to this poison. Would you want to feed it to someone? I think not. The word for stop is epistemizo. It means to stop the mouth with a bridle. 
put a stop to their lying mouth, bridle them to where they cannot speak. They profess to know God, but they deny him indeed. 2 Timothy 3 says, and then who subvert whole household. Paul addresses this in 2 Timothy 3, 6. For this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. So they're seducing women that are weakened by sin, most likely lonely women who are single or their husbands are away, right? So they come in seducing women, taking advantage of them, pounds of truth, pound of lies, teaching things they ought not to. So they lead these whole households away from the truth for the sake of sordid gain. Dishonorable gain, ill-gotten profit. Their motives are ungodly in contrast to the godly leaders. Back up in verses 6 and 7, it says, If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless, a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. Ungodly leaders love these things. They are not true to their wives. Their children are rowdy or unruly because they don't care. They are wasteful, insubordinate, quick-tempered, especially when you call them out. They get mad quick, right? They're drunkards, violent, greedy, seducing the flock, especially weak women. Taking advantage whenever, wherever they can. Whatever they can profit from, this is what they do. This, I want this and this is what I'm going to do to get it. I'm going to lie to you. I'm going to cheat from, cheat, on, cheat from you or on you for my wife. Godly leaders hold fast to the truth truth of God unholy unholy leaders twist the truth of God you know everybody has their favorite Bible verse or their life verse they want to call it or, and I have so many so much scripture that I love you know Psalm 23 and, and you know I like James a lot and, but I really always go back to three words that a pagan said in John 18 18 what is truth from there, everything else stems, right? The truth. So what is truth? When I, when I study, Lord, what is truth? Show me your truth so I can share your truth. We should be consumed by this question, leaders, the, the, the congregation. We, sh we should be, be so consumed with the truth that nothing else really matters. Because from that, we can, we can grow and learn. In 1 Timothy 6... Verses 3 to 5. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to the wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men, corrupt minds that are destitute of truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, from such withdraw yourself. 
Now, godliness and contentment, with contentment, is great gain. Their godliness is a means to get what they want, nothing more. Then we we have the effectiveness. We we see this effectiveness. They want to say this this is working because these liars. It's based on on how much money they have, or how how big their congregation is, or or how many souls were saved. God's blessing them, so this must be it. Must be right. This pragmatic approach to this. Verse 6 on down, it says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Right? Peter gives a warning in 1 Peter 5. Let's look at that. Verse 2, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, Serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. We're to be content with the privilege of expounding the truth of God. This privilege to utter a, a single word of his truth is the highest honor. This is, this is what we live for. This is our desire. We're content with this, right? And back in Titus in verse 12. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Pretty harsh, right? And in Paul's education, he was, he was a, a scholar, not only biblically, but he, he knew all of, a lot of Greek philosophy and it's coming through here. He's referring to a man named Epimenides. He was a Cretan philosopher. He lived around the 6th century B.C. He was, he was hailed as one of the, the seven wise men of Greece. He was called a prophet because he accurately predicted a, a Syrian invasion ten years before it happened. And Paul here is quoting one of his his writings concerning oracles. And in that, uh, apparently the Cretans were bragging that, that the god Zeus was buried on the island of Crete. And in Greek mythology, Zeus never died. So he's calling them liars and evil beasts and gluttons over a false god. So, so <laughs> this is funny. So the, the Cretans were, were so well known for for lying that a new word was coined based on their um, reputation. It was called Cretio, which means to play the Cretan, a.k.a. AKA liar or thief. Um, I looked it up because we have that word Cretan uh, in our language, and I couldn't really find a, a tie to it, but I only assumed that it may have came from there. I didn't really feel like going back that far, but we have a Cretan in our English language. So the idea of evil beast is by nature a beast is going to be getting what he needs by any means possible, a wild animal. They're going to behave like animals concerning with only satisfying their appetites. I'm going to go get what I need by any means necessary like an animal. They, they're, they're driven to just survive. And a glazy glutton is someone that, that 
that likes to eat more than, than work. This, this might be a weaker brother, as Joshua went over, who is, is put into leadership. You, you know, he's dogmatic about certain things and, and clearly maybe addicted to food. And um, Calvin's, Calvin's sermons, I, uh, Richard had bought me a book on Calvin's sermons on Titus. And then when he went over the, up in uh, the qualification for elders, the, uh, the alcohol. And, and Calvin also brings in the, the gluttony, the, the overindulgence. Right after alcohol, he mentions that. So there's, there's many warnings against gluttony. We know that for whatever reason, health, you know, whatever, everybody knows the story. But, you know, church, churches, they, they want to impose these rules for leadership. You, you don't, don't drink, don't smoke, cut your hair, don't cut your hair, uh, wear this, don't wear that. There's all these rules, right? They'll, they'll put into place and, and preach against these things, and they're, but they're okay with other things slotting. And it's not, it's just hypocritical. And here Paul doesn't necessarily hate the Cretans, but he's simply pointing out that their nature is, is, is what it is. This is who they are. This is how they act. And this is how we deal with it. They must be confronted with the truth. In verse 13, it says, This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. So, He's solidifying. This is absolutely right. Cretans are liars, wild beasts, lazy gluttons. So this 600-year-old this testimony is still, is still true today. These false teachers practiced deception. Their motives were, were selfish for sordid gain, remember? It says, therefore, rebuke them sharply. It is a necessary thing to boldly confront lies. As the great mid-20th century theologian Barney Fife says, you've got to nip it and nip it in the bud. If you think about that, there's a ton of truth in that. When something just sprouts up, an inkling of it, take it out. If you're familiar with, with gardening, you, you know that these things called suckers sprout up and they rob they rob a plant of, of sunlight or nutrients, and they have, to be, they have to be taken off the plant. They have to be cut off to benefit the plant, right? The word here for sharply in the Greek is apotamos. It means abruptly and sharply, quickly, sharply, get rid of it. It was not to destroy altogether. It doesn't say kill it. It says, it says remove it, take it out. But it doesn't say to kill it, but to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with patience, right? Their fate's not sealed. We're to do this as a surgeon, removing a cyst carefully, taking no more than, than is needed for healing. No more than is needed is not to infect the rest of the body. Take it out. The tools that a surgeon uses are, are very sharp, very precise. We don't go looking for a fight. I've wanted to sometimes. 
It's one of my many failures. We don't want to do that. Why? That they may be sound in the faith. We want to bring them back. That's the ultimate goal. There's really only two possible outcomes. Either, either they'll repent or they won't. That's really it. If they do repent, praise God. If they don't repent, they usually don't last long. If they do last long, they'll be disciplined accordingly and ultimately leave or just choose to leave on their own and then go infect the next body like a cancer. Of course, it is our desire that they repent. It's our desire that they be sound in the faith. And you've got to wonder what does being sound in the faith look like? Verse 14 says, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Jewish fables and commandments of men. Paying no mind to these things. 2 Corinthians 6. Fourteen to eighteen. says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? We're not to be unequally yoked. If there's one among us that is off base, we, we either need to get them back, try to bring them back to sound doctrine, we must repent. We must do it biblically. We must come from, a, from Scripture to, to correct them. But we must be a, avoid being caught up in Jewish myths. In, in 1 Timothy 1.4, Paul warns not to give heed to fables and genealogies. They cause disputes. And an edification is, is stipend. In other words, they're, they're useless. Genealogies and myths. What does it matter? It doesn't matter where you came from. The Pharisees knew better because they were descendants of Abraham. It didn't get them very far, did it? To pay attention to myths is to turn from the truth, give no heed to them. They're myths for a reason. They're worthless. Might make for a good story, but they're ultimately worthless. Matthew 15, 1. This is paralleled. It says, Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered them and said, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses his father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says this to your father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. So they come at him with their tradition. 
your disciples didn't wash their hands. It's appalling. Christ comes back with the fifth commandment. You're not under your mother and father, which is a commandment of God. And you want to call these guys out for not washing their hands. And he goes on to say, hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you? Saying, these people draw near me, near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So they're teaching their doctrine as a commandment. This is what must be done. This is how it should be done. They came at Jesus with a tradition and he responded with a commandment. Probably not a good idea. Saying it was a gift from God. I, I can't help you, Mom, because everything I had I gave to God. It, it was a gift to him. I'm sorry. I can't feed you. I can't help you with your rent. I can't help you with some clothes. The commandments of men are, are put in place as obedience to God and what he requires. It's not so. We want to try to usher in this self-righteousness. We want to say that we, we did this and we did that. And I washed my hands and I washed my feet before a meal as they would do. Myths and myths upon myths. Commands upon commands. Today we have, what, numerology where they try to sort through, sort through the Bible and find out what it means by ascribing a number to each uh, letter in the Bible. Uh, I think Ronald Reagan was the uh, Antichrist using this method. And I learned also that that's been going on since the, the ninth century AD. And then we have the Bible code. I forgot what that was. And then it gets a little, a little simpler, you know, telling, telling someone Jesus loves them and wants a relationship with them. I'm not his matchmaker. The gospel is is that God hates those who work iniquity. It provides his own sacrifice to bring those that would would believe to himself. You gotta say this sinner's prayer. Just say this prayer. No. Ask Jesus into your heart. Nope. You must be baptized. Nope. All roads lead to God. As long as you're sincere in your belief, they all lead to God. Nope. Repent and believe the gospel. Yes. Simple. All these things upon things upon things. Repent and believe. Simple. We're to understand the truth of the gospel and dedicate ourselves to it. It's, it's central. It's essential to the faith. It's where all truth stems from. By the, this one truth, we can know all the truth that God has revealed to us in the person of Christ and his will for us. This is the result of ignoring false teachers. They, they can't really get a foothold on us, right? Colton brought up in... In class this morning, the, the service project that the kids went on, this little trip to, I think they were helping fix houses or something, and uh, they came back just appalled at the awful doctrine 
the awful teaching that they had to sit under. And I, was, I thought, well, maybe you guys are just, you know, overthinking it. And then Brandy came and was like, no, it was terrible. Oh. So we didn't go on any more service trips after that. I'm not saying don't do those types of things. I'm saying maybe not sit under heresy. So these rules and rituals are things to avoid. We don't, we don't want to guide into them. So these men have been, they hide behind the guise of being, being spiritual, but they're, they're really dead men walking. They're worthless. The truth is not in them. How do we know this? Verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those, to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. So to the pure, all things are pure. And on the surface, you know, we had discussed it before the service. It seems, it seems cryptic. You're like, oh, okay, what does that mean? So who are the pure? And the pure are the, those who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Those who have been made pure by the washing of the blood of Christ. So what are all things? Creation is all things. God has given us creation to enjoy. I love to get out into creation and go hiking. That's one of the things I enjoy. But 1 Timothy 6 tells us, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So some people are trusting in the smaller things, which are blessings, whatever they may be, instead of the, the one who blessed them with it. All things. We're to enjoy all things. It's not just one particular thing or a few particular things that happen to make us happy, but all things are ours to enjoy. That's a wonderful truth. Not in uncertain riches, not in uncertain things. Don't go worship a tree. We don't put our trust in uncertain things. 1 Timothy 4 tells us, For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused it is, if it is received with thanksgiving. Now Peter, in a, in a vision, saw animals which were not kosher. And, and the Lord said, he heard, he heard the voice of the Lord say, Rise, kill and eat, Peter. And Peter says, No, I can't. Not going there. And then a voice said again, don't, don't call anything unclean which, that which I have made clean. You eat. The Judaizers were all about this. Marriage was another thing that they forbade, and the list goes on and on, rules upon rules. Let's look at Luke here. Chapter 11. Sorry, I should have said that earlier. It said, And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward parts are full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but rather give alms to such things as you have? Then indeed all things are clean to you. 
But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe of mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and love and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving others undone. <laughs> Jesus was getting just sitting down to eat. He gets called out. You know, hey Jesus, can you imagine calling out the Lord of Glory, the the Glory? He says, "You didn't wash your hands." I think not. Then Jesus lays this on him. He's like, "You look like you're clean, but you're not. You're nowhere near clean. You just washed the outside. You had this appearance of cleanliness and purity, though they're totally off base, totally far from it." We've got legalism, which is in view here. It's about how many things should be done, not, not what is prescribed by the word of God. I must do this. I must do this. So therefore, you must do this. You must do this. We had another instance. A gentleman was particularly upset with some people's attire. And it kept going on and on and on. And, you know, it was, it was getting to the point where we were all going to be wearing robes. And finally, we, we kind of put a stop to it. Like, look, dude, you got to, we can't, we can't meet your expectations. You, you have to kind of give us a little grace here. You kind of have to, you're going to have to pull it back some. We can't, we can't live up to what you're asking us to. This man called me cursing, taking the moral high ground over someone's apparel while cursing at me. Cursed Josh on the telephone, yelling. All while taking this moral high ground because someone wore a particular thing. Rules upon rules. We get to a point that we we think we're gaining favor with God by doing or not doing certain things. Then we're on dangerous ground. It quickly turns into a works based salvation. It's what am I doing? How am I doing? Why can't I get this right? It doesn't. It doesn't matter. You got ritualistic religion. It, that's the basis for, for every false religion, right? You must earn your way. You must do these things to get there. And most of them have Christ's name attached to them. Works righteousness is at the heart. I had a, you know what a flashpan Christian is, right? A grease fire, you know, you like a grease fire, they just flame up real fast, and then almost as quick, it's gone. I had a guy that I worked with was always bringing things to me, like, hey, what do you think about this, and what do you think about that? And most of the time, he was way off base, and it was, it was really, I mean, it's daily, most, multiple times a day. And I would say, well, you've got to consider these things or these things. And finally, I got to the point, I said, dude, this is, where, this is how cults get started. You need to, you need to study <laughs> You need to get in the word and, and understand it. He, he even made the point one time. He said, I don't think Jesus was, was uh, the son of God. I was like, how'd you get there from here? Well, I, I just don't see it in the Bible. I'm like, which part did you not read? Maybe read John. Well, that's what I've been studying. <laughs> okay. A little deeper. You can get there. Romans 10.3 tells us, for they... Being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Seeking their own righteousness. This is the scribes and the Pharisees. This is when that, that little, bit of, little bit of truth comes in and it just 
festers and it, and it, it leavens and it, it comes to the top and it rises. That's why you've got to cut it off. For the ones defiled, nothing or can be pure. Nothing is pure or can be pure. For those that refuse the truth, nothing can ever be pure. It will not be and cannot be pure. They stubbornly exalt themselves. They have a get-on-my-level attitude. I'm up here. You guys got to get with me. I'll help you because I'm smart. You can do it. They feel this righteousness can be attained by human effort. They're slaves to these false ideas. They're slaves to self-deception. They're slaves to empty philosophies. It doesn't matter. Their conscience is dysfunctional. As we read here, defiled, it says. In Matthew 15... Verse 11, the Lord sums, sums this up. It says, Now, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth defiles the man. Don't eat this, don't eat that, don't do this, don't do that. And then, uh, then Peter on down in verse 15 says, Peter, Then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil, th- evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not fi- defile a man. The Jews were so careful to manage every little aspect of their life. Uh, even on the Sabbath, I think they, they counted their steps. They couldn't walk but so far. They couldn't, they couldn't do but so many things. Couldn't help their neighbor that was in need on the Sabbath. So these efforts that, that they put in, or even we put in, or some people put in today, they're, they're rubbish. It says defilement is from the inside. No, no matter what you say or do, defilement comes from within. It's not from an external source. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is desperately wicked. It says that it is deceitful. We're by nature deceived by our own heart. A lot of false teachers... Everyone's basically good. You're all right. You got full churches. God loves you just the way you are. Big goofy smile on their face. They often have a lot of money too. People love to donate to the cause of uplifting themselves. I'm going to invest in me by giving this guy a lot of stuff to make him tell me the things that I love to hear because I love me. Biblical truth. 
You're a wretched sinner, dead in trespassing and sin, hated by God. His wrath rests upon you. That's not pleasant. You're deserving of hell for eternity. That's not very palatable, is it? Nobody wants to swallow that. But is it true? It absolutely is. And you got the four little words, the four magic words, the four words that are the greatest truth that can be condensed into four words. Christ died for sinners. That's as compact as you can make the gospel. Are you a sinner? Repent and believe. Are you a believer trying to maintain salvation or, or, or evaluating or judging your salvation based on what you are doing or not doing right? Repent and believe. He is the Lord. He will finish. He, not us, he, singularly, finish what he has begun in you. You have nothing to do with it. He will finish the work. We'll go back to Titus here. It says, They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. You don't profess to know God and then deny him in works. So it seems a little contradictory, right? I just said it's not by works, and now I'm saying it's works. You're like, where are you going here? Works are a byproduct of salvation. Those things will come. They're a litmus test. Paul says to examine yourselves daily to make sure you have the faith. You can't examine yourself. But what you can't do is just try to justify how well you're doing or not doing based on your works. Your works will come. The Spirit of God is working within you, bringing you closer and closer to God, making you more like the Son of God continuously. People do have a works-based salvation. They deny him in works, ironically. That's really taking his name in vain. He says, you say I'm a Christian, then you go lie and, and cheat and seduce weak women. You're a hypocrite. You're a liar. You have taken the Lord's name in vain. We don't possess faith by works. We have a faith that produces works. We have a faith that works. Works are a product. The work Christ began in us, it will come. The marks of a Christian are a genuine relationship with God and the conduct or works that flow from it are from God. To think that you did any of it, to take credit for any of it, you're robbing glory from God. You say, well, I got that right. <laughs> he got that right. False teachers are the opposite. They claim to know God, but deny him in works. You must do, you must do, you must do. Or the other end of the spectrum is, God loves you. You're cool. Don't worry about it. So they deny him in works while simultaneously basing their knowledge of God on their works. Crazy. They are pious in their ignorance. They, they love their ignorance. 
they often flaunt their position in the church or the community. You got to hear about how educated they are, the people that they know, or the people that they have met. I was one building over from John MacArthur a couple of weeks ago, if it matters. I was. It's my big flex, right? This is the same, the same language here is the same that, that Jesus described in the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24. The same, those that profess to know God, abominable. That's the same language that Jesus used, the abominable. So disobedience betrays a professed faith. And really the obedience is the, the faithfulness to the word of God. We are disobedient. Every one of us, we fall short. We, we fall short daily. But obedience is to the word of God, our, our desire, which comes from him to, to serve him. Ephesians 2, 2 tells us they are walking according, in a, walking according to the, the counsel of this world, according to the, the things of Satan. Ephesians 5, 6 says that the wrath of God is upon the sons of disobedience. They are worthless, disqualified, or rejected. Good for nothing again. The wrath of God is upon them. And I gotta, I say all that. I gotta say that their faith is, it's not sealed. Their faith is not sealed yet, because Paul gets really harsh. And in verse thirteen, we gotta consider that. Rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. And that's our goal. Their mouths must be stopped. They must be shut up. Whatever cancer has infected them, this, this lie that has infected them, it must be carefully and sharply cut out, removed, before it spreads and affects the whole body. I was a part of a church body years ago, and I, I got to know, I wasn't in leadership, and I got, but I got to know the people in leadership fairly well because I did a lot of ministry work with them, and I was in the office, and a guy pulled up that, he was not a bad guy, but the pastor started going on about what an idiot he was and, and, and different things about this man. And I was, like, kind of taken back, you know. But when the guy walks in the office, he hugs him and tells him he loves him. And it was like they were long-lost friends that hadn't seen each other in years. And all I could think was, like, is that, is that what they think of me? Is this how I'm getting treated? Would you, would you not be justified in thinking that way? And always concerned. I, I remember it, it came to a head, and there was a little bit of a blow up. And this man came to me, and and it was over my opinion of of them being in leadership. And uh, all he kept saying was, don't do anything to hurt my ministry. Please don't do anything to hurt my ministry. Please don't do anything to hurt my ministry. I'm like, I'm not. I didn't go tell the world what I saw. I didn't, I didn't blast it on TV. But he was more concerned about what it looked like than how he acted. I want people to see what I want them to see not necessarily who I am. I never forgot it. I, among other things, you know. 
And I, I don't want to be like that. I know Josh doesn't want to be like that. I don't, I don't think I know anybody in this church that would want to be like that. I never want to play the hypocrite. We want the Spirit of God to work within us in such a way that if, if a charge was brought against us, that no one would even believe it. Like, you're crazy. Not Josh. He would not do that. And even in the body, if somebody said, you know, Richard did whatever, I would, nah, not buying it. Might talk to Richard about it, like, hey, man, you know, this, we, need a chat, we need to have a chat, you know. And on the same token, if I did do something stupid or, or awful, I would hope that the Spirit of God worked in me, I'm sure Josh agrees, and all of you would agree, that we would admit it. Like, yeah, I messed up. I messed up bad. And then we would beg for forgiveness. That's what we want to be like. I, we, we want to faithfully serve this body. I don't care any, anything about any extra biblical genealogies or how many kids people had. Or I do care about the blood of Christ. That's, we don't go there. You know, we know that elders are called to a higher standard. We're, we're accountable for ourselves and how we led the, the children of God, this bride of Christ. We're, we are absolutely more accountable for those things. And if you're a teacher in here, congratulations, you're held to that same standard. We like to put pastors on a pedestal, and sometimes it's to, uh, to knock them off, as I've heard one man say, and it's, it's kind of true sometimes that we've been held to a standard that is absolutely unattainable. Uh, one man said that we only had one, one chance to be over of reproach, and I was disqualified before I started. But people saw qualities or these things that are here, not necessarily my wholehearted desire but these people put me here, they put Josh here, they put other teachers here. Other teachers are rising up. Sometimes pastors are lifted up because they're, they're really good speakers and real charismatic and they hug on people just right and tell them how much they love them and I do love you guys and I'll hug you all day long. But they have that charisma about them that, that people just flock to them and they make them something that they're not. We're no different at all. You know, when, when one young man here had talked to us about maybe that desire was within him, you know, the first thing I like to tell people, especially new, new members, is that we're all growing together. We're all learning together. We're not, we don't have it all figured out. We don't. I learned so many things from so many of you. I, I listen to, to some men teach, and I'm like, this is great. I sit over there, and I, I listen to people that stand here, and, and it's so amazing to me that the, the word of God that's flowing from their mouth. When, uh, when Justin Bice came here, I was just totally blown away, and, and I'm like, I just want to sit there and listen. Can I just sit there and listen? That would be great. I love good preaching. We were talking amongst ourselves at the Shepherds Conference 
about our teachers here. We just started kind of naming them off, right? Eleven. Eleven just right off the top of our head. I'm sure there's more, and I know there's more that are coming up. We see it. Uh, it's inevitable. Uh, and we had talked about how other churches are struggling to get anyone to teach. And one of the things that I had pondered, one of the factors that I had considered was that how much emphasis are you putting on how, how great you are or how smart you are? How much, how much does your congregation hear that, right? And, and is, that, is that making these people feel disqualified by default? Well, I don't have this much education, and I've not, I've not gone to whatever seminary, and I've not done this. Is that, is that a factor? You know, how, how, how educated do you know Josh is? I mean, he's, we know how educated Josh is. Not one of you asked, have asked me how educated I am, ever. I don't think it matters. We don't, we don't preach that here. And I think that's why we have some great teachers. They're not afraid. They're not intimidated by Josh. So we counted 11 people right off the top of our heads, two or three more in the near future. If you do the math, we average 50 people or so. So 20% of our congregation are teachers. I don't think, I don't think any, I don't know that you could find any other church that has that kind of numbers. And I praise God for, for all of them. We're blessed, so blessed at this church. You know, we've had our share of ups and downs. We haven't lost, we haven't lost very many people at all. We've always been able to work through things because people here, they strive for the truth. Apologies get made and we, we hug it out and move on. And I know that more things will come. Things will come, right? And we'll, we'll have to do the same thing. And my prayer is that it draws us ever more closer as it has in the past. As we deal with issues that come and go, false teachings, deaths, whatever. I love you all. Let us pray. And merciful Father, as we come before you, we just, we just so appreciate your, your word and your truth. Lord, I pray that I've done you some measure of justice today in helping, helping us understand. Lord, I just ask that the sermon not end here, that, that these people would, would take these words and be able to identify these either false teachers or, or anything that may come about as we've seen in the past that we may quickly deal with it and you may be, may be glorified and the body be edified from it. Lord, we love you and we praise you and all of God's children said.